0: Hello, and welcome to the Media Laydown. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for debt wire Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues. I'm going to change it up, because Greg Clark is always complaining. Greg Clark, our head of municipal research. Well, thank you, now, Paul. For for a
1: while there, I was starting to feel like Ringo. You know, it's always <laughs> John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah, you know, it's amazing
0: how sensitive people are, but that's okay. I understand. I appreciate it. <laughs> we also have... Seth Brumby, our deputy editor, and Mary Ellen Ty, our assistant editor. So, welcome everyone. Uh, it's Mary Ellen, why don't we get started first with Santi Cooper, a.k.a. the South Carolina Public Service Authority. What's going on there?
2: Thanks, Paul. Santi Cooper has been talked about being for sale ever since the Westinghouse bankruptcy caused Santi Cooper and their partner, South Carolina Electric and Gas, or SCENG, to stop work on the VC summer plant. There are two nuclear reactors that they stopped building. Um, There are other functional nuclear reactors on site providing power. A topic of conversation has been who would be interested in purchasing Santee Cooper. And with Dominion's recent bid for Scana, which is the parent company of SCENG, some people had been thinking that there would be natural synerg- synergies to also purchasing Santee Cooper. So then you have control over this entire expensive project that got halted. And while I was calling around to the market on that, what people pointed out to me is just the leverage that you see at Scana versus Santee Cooper. If you compare the debt to an earnings metric for both of the two for Scana, it's about the debt is about four times. And then for Santee Cooper, comparing to the same earnings metric, it's like 12 times, which is just mind bogglingly, you know, larger in terms of an acquisition. So the sources I was talking to were saying that there will need to be some way to offload the debt, potentially a securitization structure, something with money going into a lockbox, money that maybe comes from all ratepayers, not just Santee Cooper ratepayers.
3: Yeah, one of the more fascinating things about applying corporate metrics to the municipal world is most of them obviously don't translate. Uh, A lot of what corporate valuations require is some kind of equity, and we all know that municipal entities don't have that. Uh, But still, it's it's nice to kind of dress it up sometimes and just take a look at, okay, well, if we can at least do what we can to maybe compare apples to crab apples, we can see really what municipal finances look like. And Sandy Cooper is very highly levered, um, on an earnings before interest and depreciation amortization basis. And you compare that to other corporates in the world and you wonder how can these guys still get a cost of capital of less than, you know, 5% over 30 years. It's amazing. Muni bonds. Yeah. Yeah. you, You raise a good
1: point, Seth. Obviously, uh, it's much easier to do the kind of analysis you described for a municipal enterprise like Sandy Cooper than it is for a city they've actually got revenue-producing assets cities tend not to. If they do have water and sewer systems, they tend to be issued separately secured bonds.
3: Yeah, that'll be an interesting story to watch. I mean, isn't there a, You know, I, I take a look at it, and I, I see some signs that there might be a lot of consolidation in the public power industry.
2: Yeah, Seth and I were talking about this earlier this week, that one of the kickers from this Trump tax p- plan, and Politico wrote about this, is that a bunch of utilities had set aside money to pay taxes for the last calendar year. And all of a sudden they don't need that much money anymore. And there's a lot of things they could do with that, right? They might build new infrastructure. They might return, like return it to their customers in the form of lower rates, but they also might consolidate, you know, they have this cash that they didn't have to raise sitting in an account. Um, If they can get approval with with the respective state regulatory bodies, it'll be interesting to see where they decide to execute that.
0: Okay. So we're recording on Thursday afternoon, February 8th, and there's been a lot of developments in the market generally. Uh, Seth with the Dow going way down on Monday and coming back up a little bit and it's been going way down today. We'll see where it la- ends up. Um, but what's been uh, happening simultaneously uh, with the muni market?
3: Yeah, I have to say, Wednesday was pretty exciting. Excuse me, Monday was pretty exciting. It had been a, uh, a long time since we saw a market collapse like that. Now, obviously, things are fine, but just to see the sell-off um, in terms of just points on the Dow was pretty amazing. I hadn't seen that since the financial crisis, but to have it down 1,600 points that at one interval and then come back to 1,200, and then the following day to see the futures open up sharply down again but then the rebound, volatility is back. And that can actually be a good thing depending on what asset classes you're in, but I think for people that like more safe and predictable and consistent investments, municipal bonds might once again uh, become a favorite investment. And lo and behold, let's look at the month of January. In the month of January, we had $9.9 billion of inflows. That is the second highest monthly inflows uh, in 10 years. The last time that we saw inflows of that much was in September of 2009. And at that point, it was 10.3 billion. So January, you had a lot of supply, excuse me, a lot of flows coming into municipal mutual funds. And we'll see what they do with that money going forward. Um, By the way, we had 1.9 billion in the last week of January alone new issuance for the last week of January is about $5.2 billion, which is about much less than it was in December when we had record issuance. So maybe you could even say that the municipal market is volatile, too, with all this supply coming in in December, but then not coming in January. But now here come the fund flows. So uh, it, it's been an interesting start to the year and an interesting close to last year, too.
2: Yeah, that was something we talked about a few times, that people were going to have to try and figure out how to invest in, Janu- in december for the fund flows they might expect in january because there just wasn't any paper yeah. relatively
3: yeah
0: and there were a c- couple of deals from this past week we want to talk about first mary ellen harris county toll road
2: thanks paul harris county toll road is a toll road down in texas um the bonds are secured by revenues from the project And they did pretty well um, pricing 34 basis points over the AAA MMD for 10 years in a deal on February 7th. So yesterday or two days ago, depending on when you're listening, it's a well-established toll road. It's just interesting to keep watching those as we talk about infrastructure and how we're going to fund infrastructure in the United States going forward, as this is part of a public private partnership.
0: All right. And Greg, why don't we move on? to Skidmore, and maybe you could add some comments about higher ed generally as well.
1: Sure. Skidmore College sold 33 million bonds this past week. Skidmore College, for those who uh, know of the school, or if you don't know of the school, is a small four-year school in Saratoga Springs, New York, which I'm sure many of our listeners have have visited. And uh, proceeds will be used to build new classroom space, pay for some machinery and equipment, and pay capitalized interest for two years. Capitalized interest for our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with the term, basically within those $33 million in bonds is the equivalent of what it's gonna take to pay interest on the bonds for two years. So they're borrowing to pay their own interest costs. That's uh, a little bit unusual for a case like this. Usually, when there's capitalized interest, it's because there's a new revenue producing entity coming along and a new classroom space, in my opinion, doesn't meet that criterion. But Skidmore impressed us in one way in that it does not require uh, standardized tests, either the SAT or the ACT uh, for admission. They have about 2,639 students there which is a little bit low. They accept 25% of the students who apply and of the students who are accepted, 27% of that pool decides to go there. They feature programs in the performing and visual arts, and they're trying to improve their science programs. So we did a little research and we've seen the, the, the idea of uh, other schools with standardized that don't require standardized tests. In New York state, there's about 72 schools that don't require the SAT or the ACT. About half of of that number, about half of 72 are strictly religious schools uh, that really don't fit the profile of a traditional four-year school. Uh, In addition to Skidmore, some of the better known schools are St. Lawrence, Ithaca, Hofstra, and St. John's. And then we took a look at schools in New York state that do require standardized tests, scores. In that group, the strongest schools are Columbia, Cornell, Barnard, NYU, and Syracuse. And I think you can tell the difference. The other schools are much tougher to get in. The schools that require tests are much tougher to get into. And, uh, it kind of fits our working theory that the schools that don't require an SAT don't require them for two reasons. Number one, it allows them more latitude in who they accept. And number two, when they are reporting their um, their stats to different entities such as US News and World Report, if you don't require the SATs, you don't have to report the SATs. So it helps them in their rankings in, uh, in programs such as US
3: News and World Report. That's interesting. Okay. I wish I didn't have to take my SATs. Yeah.
0: yeah. You mentioned Cornell, too, right, Greg? I thought you said
3: that.
1: I went to Syracuse.
0: Oh. Oh, well, I went to Cornell, so I really don't care that you went to
1: Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you went to an Ivy. We get it.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I just, you know, that wasn't why I mentioned it, but... Uh... Oh,
1: all right. No, I, I, I went to Syracuse grad school. I went to Oswego uh, State for undergrad.
0: Both fine schools. Indeed. Uh, and... Uh, The other thing, I just want a point of correction. I think you mentioned St. Lawrence, but did you mean St. Lawrence or did you mean Sarah Lawrence?
1: Yeah, I meant St. Lawrence.
0: Okay, all right. I just wanted to check.
1: Yeah, that one surprised me, too.
0: Oh, all right. Good. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on there. It does make you wonder whether, you know, Skidmore is trying to loosen its admission policy or not, but... It's a tough environment out there for
1: all of these schools, so. Yeah, it makes, makes it tougher for parents to judge a school, too, or for their teenage son or daughter. Of course, it's usually parents, I guess, who have tighter criteria for the school their, their child goes to. It's going to yeah. cost
3: how much? <laughs> <laughs> a, friend of
1: mine once, a friend of mine once said marketing for higher ed is kind of funny because they're, they're marketing to what 17-year-olds want to do. But the payers are 40, 50, 60- year old people. so there's a bit of a, a, a bit of a chasm there.:
0: Yeah. So uh, let's keep it moving. Seth, we, we had uh, Lombard in court coming to an agreement, it seems like.
3: Well, it, it helps when your holdout creditor sells their position. Lombard Public Facilities Corporation has been in bankruptcy since last year, and there was some challenges to its initial petition for Chapter 11. Some of its bondholders or creditors, among them Lord Abbott, objected to the Chapter 11 filing, essentially saying that Lombard was not a a corporation and was more akin to municipality and wanted the case dismissed. Now, if it had been dismissed, that puts it in a difficult spot because Illinois does not authorize Chapter 9 for its municipalities. Uh, the judge actually uh, disagreed with Lord Abbott and uh, believed that Lombard was actually a public corp- excuse me a corporation, and Lombard, by the way, uh, it, it operates a convention center, some restaurants, and it had uh, fallen on hard times because the village of Lombard, was uh, intercepting certain revenues that were supposed to go towards paying bondholders. And that's eventually why uh, Lombard Public Facilities had to file for bankruptcy. That's the backstory. Um, but recently, our reporter in Chicago, Caitlin Devitt, learned that Lord Abbott had sold out of its position in January. And as a result, it seemed as though there might be a settlement towards the remaining objections of the uh, plan of reorganization. We'll find out for sure on March 6th when there's a confirmation hearing. But it's just kind of interesting, uh, just to go through a, a, an important number real quick. So uh, Lord Abbott held about $8.5 million of the first tier Series A1 bonds. These bonds are supposed to get about a 77% recovery uh, in the bankruptcy. However, uh, if you looked at trading data from January, when allegedly Lord Abbott sold out, they sold their bonds for 38 cents on the dollar. So not quite certain why there was such a difference between them selling and what the recovery was supposed to be. Uh, Lord Abbott might not believe in some of the projections in the planning organization and want to get out. Who knows? I mean, maybe I wouldn't blame them if they didn't like the numbers. If you don't like the numbers, then yeah, you probably should sell that investment. but we'll, we'll see how that one unfolds in a post-reorganization timeline, uh, but it looks like that one's winding down.
0: Why don't we move into uh, one of our perennial topics, which is Puerto Rico, but maybe let's start first with a shameless plug, uh, Seth, with what people can do before they get into whatever kind of activities later on in the day, how they can start their Valentine's Day next Wednesday.
3: You can take your date to a go-to webinar of wire Municipals discussing the situation in Puerto Rico. You will be joined by pretty much the entire municipal's team because pretty much the entire municipal's team does cover Puerto Rico, or most of us do anyway, and it it starts at 11 in the morning on Wednesday and we'll be touching on recent uh, legal decisions by the judge in the case. We'll also be touching on the fiscal economic growth plans. We'll be touching on the uh, new financing coming in, whether or not it's from the federal government or uh, kind of conduit financing going down to the Electric Power Authority there. There's a lot to go over since our last presentation in September or October of last year. So it's been about three or four months and there's a lot to talk about. So be on the lookout for a link probably are, coming to you. Are, are we
1: planning anything special since it's going to be on Valentine's Day? I mean extra special. I mean Puerto Rico was always special, but...
3: I'll, I'll put a heart in the, uh, the presentation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love Puerto Rico. I do love Puerto Rico. And we can do that. No. (laughs) Okay, well, as long as you don't send candles to people in Puerto Rico, I think we'll be fine. Yes.
0: I don't know. You guys heard about the the first lady of uh, Puerto Rico's. It was actually supposed to be an act to bring people together, but she sent out all these candles late last year, and... Eh... You probably, if you know that people, if you well, put it this way: if you don't have electricity, then you're probably not going to send people candles. Or if you have electricity, then you probably don't care. And make that mistake, but you know ugh.
3: what? I am going to play devil's advocate here um, because
0: oh, I'm, I'm being business.
3: Okay, you know, I remember uh, Hurricane Sandy when it came through, or Superstorm Sandy when it came through New York. Um, everybody was out buying candles because they knew that they're going to lose power. And I went into this one pharmacy in my neighborhood, and they were just giving away those long, tall dining room candles. And I took about a dozen of them. I didn't need to use them. I didn't lose power. And I certainly didn't lose power for six months. So I can appreciate if some people were rubbed a little bit the wrong way. But that said, there is an acknowledgement that uh, people need light. And however crude it might have been, I think those were probably her intentions.
2: Or nothing brings people together like animosity towards someone else.
1: That helps. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was it, guessing it was symbolic of, you know, let's, let's keep our light shining through the crisis and
3: all that. That's a nice way of looking at it, too. And, and either way, it could seem like maybe she's uh, getting a little bit too much of um, a beating. But because I, I do think that she was uh, genuinely trying to make a nice gesture.
0: Unfortunately, it didn't seem like uh, folks down the island agreed, but,
3: um... Perception is reality, and I can appreciate that their response was not entirely positive, too.
0: (laughs) But, uh, but hopefully everyone will have power soon. But keeping it rolling, Mary Ellen, Uh, there was also a couple of hearings. Uh, The Omnibus hearing, uh, Prepa Tip hearing, Prepa as in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Tell us a little bit more.
2: Thanks, Paul the omnibus hearing was yesterday. Um, it was pretty brief because most of the material events got rescheduled for the, the Puerto Rico electric power authority dip hearing, which will be next Friday. Um, Thursday, uh, Thursday, the 15th. Yeah. Sorry. You're right. It's the 15th. Thank you, Seth. Um, and so Anyway, that's when they will be discussing a $1.3 billion debtor-in-possession financing loan for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. It's also when the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority had been estimating they would run out of cash, so um,
3: so we'll see. Yeah, what a coincidence. Um, no, Your Honor, we don't need to talk about it this week because we have money, but next week when we don't have any money, we'll, we'll need it and it'll be an emergency here and you'll just have to say yes. Yeah, debtors like to do that. They like to kind of put judges against the wall and say, you know, judge, if you don't do this, everything is horrible and it's just going to fall on its face and everything's going to collapse. But I I will say it will be an interesting hearing. We've never seen a dip of this size. We've never seen a dip of this structure either. It it looks like the Commonwealth will act as a conduit uh, for federal relief. In other words, uh, whatever federal monies uh, can give to the commonwealth, the commonwealth can make a loan out of that and hand that down to its agencies like PREPA. Um, There was, the commonwealth did file terms for the debtor in possession financing, I want to say last week, And and if you go through it just a little bit, you know, look up the term commonwealth financing, that's a capitalized term, so it does have a legal definition, and it essentially talks about the terms for forgiveness too. And that's important because one of the big criticisms that bondholders have against this debt and possession financing is that it's not an arm's length transaction. The Commonwealth did not go around and shop around uh, for better dip terms, which is something that you always have to do in a Chapter 11 context. And even in a Chapter 9 context, too, if I recall Detroit correctly, there are a couple of different bidders for their dip facility. Uh, but the thing is, is that I don't know if any creditor could actually sit there and give a dip facility with forgiveness terms in it. So I I would find it very hard to believe that anybody can quite match what the Commonwealth will do as a conduit. But nevertheless, there's going to be some fireworks next Thursday, and we'll be in court to watch and report on it for all of you.
0: All right. And just a couple of more items uh, pretty quickly. One being developments in New Jersey, Um, they've begun to take steps for potential tobacco refinancing. the, the New Jersey Department of Treasury announced that the two firms, Jeffries and Citigroup, have been tapped to underwrite the deal. I don't know if anybody had any thoughts in terms of a good idea, a bad idea. The 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 plan is to use bond bond proceeds to cover a projected deficit. And this is like one of those classic situations where the new governor Phil Murphy is coming in and saying that the uh, the previous governor, in this case Chris Christie left him
2: holding the bag yeah so jeffries has done some pretty good tobacco bond refinancings from the perspectives of issuers lately they've been able to get some pretty substantial interest rate savings some bond upgrades so that might be what new jersey is angling to do in that particular transaction um as far as to whether or not chris christie left the new governor holding the bag i think um, I think our our listeners probably know that Chris Christie has done many things like change pension funding and um, agreed to some premature maybe lawsuit settlements for lower than he needed to in terms of like cleanup for contaminated sites. So they might they can decide for their for their own selves whether or not Chris Christie might have left someone holding a bag.
1: You you raised some good points. The uh, the discount rate on the pension funds was lowered 2 weeks maybe before Christie left office, which means, of course, that the funding requirement going forward for annual pension contributions goes up by a lot. Uh, having, having said that, I'm always a bit skeptical when a new governor or president of any party comes into office and says, oh, things are a lot worse than, than we thought. Uh, that just tells me that uh, if, if you're telling the truth, uh, your staff isn't as good as it ought to be.
3: Transition
0: team, too. Yeah. Okay, Greg, and then
3: one more story
0: that's been developing over a period of time, but it seems to have uh, really um, hit its peak now is uh, Michigan State University.
1: Michigan State has about almost a billion dollars of debt, $975 million, uh, currently under review by... uh, Ratings are under review by at least one rating agency. And the bonds are... Uh, secured by a pledge of general revenues, which includes tuition and a host of other fees, but excludes state appropriations, which in fiscal year 17 were about 200, 276 million dollars. Uh, in all honesty, there's there's uh, really no risk to default here that I can see because of the uh, of the scandal uh, regarding. Larry Nassar and and all that. But having said that, the presidents of the universities resigned, the athletic director retired, and they are being <clears throat> excuse me investigated by the U.S. Department of Education, the NCAA, the Michigan House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, and the Michigan Attorney General. This is is not a, a good thing for a school to say the least. Uh, and it, that's totally apart, of course, from what happened to all the students and all the patients of of, uh, Dr. Nassar. Uh, There's always reputational risk. Uh, Fortunately for bondholders at Michigan State, if you have uh, a scandal hit Michigan State that's that big a school, they have about 47,000 full-time equivalent students. If you have a scandal hit at Michigan State, they can withstand it a lot better than a small private school, uh, which would probably be wiped out by this kind of thing. So it's, it's, very, it's very sad what's happened there, and uh, it might result in lower enrollments. Uh, there's been some schools that have had, some public schools that have had controversies that have had lower enrollment, and, uh, but you always have state appropriations there. So no state wants to see its flagship school uh, go into any kind of financial distress if they can. If there's any way at all that they can avoid it.
0: All right. Well, that was a, a busy uh, podcast this week. Uh, thanks to Greg, Seth, and Mary Ellen. Thank you to Andrew Casentino. You can't hear him, but without him, you wouldn't be able to hear us. So we appreciate his efforts as our podcast producer extraordinaire. I'm Paul Graves. We'll talk to you next week on the Media Lowdown. Take care.